Please turn in your Bibles to two places today. 1 Timothy 2, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 3, and Acts 8. Acts 8. So 1 Timothy and Acts 8, that's where we're going to be today. We are in 1 Timothy 3. Follow me in your Bibles if you have them, starting at verse 14. Paul writes to young Timothy, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write, so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And Father, again, these precious words of life handed down through the ages, translated from different languages, that we might have the copies that we have in our hand right now so that you could meet with us in a place like this on a day such as today. And you'll speak to us. You'll answer our questions. You'll heal our hurting. You'll strengthen our spirit. Oh, bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of you here like a good mystery? Anybody? All right, the younger generation from the time that we're young, you know, the the kids, they engage in mysteries. How many of you have ever celebrated because you just like figured out Blue's Clues? Has anybody ever celebrated? We just figured out Blue's Clues. We just figured out Blue's Clues. All right, for the older generation, for the older generation, okay, for the older generation, thank you, it was the Scooby-Doo Mysteries. For the older generation now, it's more like CSI. And, and I guess the American public is very interested in that because they have CSI, they had Las Vegas, they had New York, they had Miami, they had CSI Hawaii. I think they were coming out with CSI Disney World or something like that. There's all sorts of CSIs because people love mysteries, right? For even the older generation, maybe it was Sherlock Holmes watching him with his trusty sidekick Watson figure out the different clues. And we love mysteries, don't we? They are intriguing. They challenge us. They expand our minds. Who done it? The real life mysteries, some of those things that they may never figure out historically, they intrigue us. For the older generation again, Jimmy Hoffa, will they ever find him? Stonehenge, how did it happen? The pyramids of Egypt. But then you go more scientific, and when you go scientific, you think of certain things like like a, a butterfly. What happens in the chrysalis as the butterfly transformed from the caterpillar. All of these things are mysteries to us. A platypus. It's a mammal that lays eggs. Good luck with that one. Okay? There's all sorts of mysteries that, that we look at and we say, wow, but 
perhaps when we look at the living God, how many of you have ever looked at what the Bible teaches about God and said, this is a mystery, that he created all things out of nothing? That's a mystery to us. Science has tried to figure it out, and they've narrowed it down to this particle called the Higgs boson particle, which they've called the God particle because they can't figure out where the particle came from necessarily. So there are all sorts of mysteries. The greatest mystery, well, you each have one. Actually, you have two. It's the human eye. It says here, in the retina, there are about 6 million light-sensitive cone cells and another 100 million or so light-sensitive rods. But then there's the optic nerve, the cornea, the lens, many millions. And what's kind of cool is this, is that when you think of the human eye, in order for it to form, our friend Louis Giglio said this, is that what happened for the human eye to see is that one million optic nerve endings left the center and they had to meet up with another million optic nerve members. Uh, and in that moment, what happened was is that you had sight. Is that not a miracle, the human eye? And it's a miracle that science and evolution has not been able to figure out. And with all of these great and wonderful mysteries we look at, the greatest mystery of all is what we see in today's passage. And Paul says it to young Timothy. He says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. How a man or a woman in today's world can be like God is crazy. In a self-centered, fallen world that a man or a woman can, well, we can show love in a world that's full of hate. We can experience peace in a world that's full of war. We can have joy in a world that is absolutely full of misery. And that is the mystery of godliness, how a man or a woman can live like that in today's world. And so that's what we're going to take a look at today. And the mystery of godliness, how it grows in a person, well, it's not unlike some of the other mysteries that we... It, it's not unlike... A, uh, what I was doing yesterday with my son, we were planting. Now, I'm not a planter. I am not, I'm not a green thumb. There are a couple of things I can't do. One is I'm, I have no good with a hammer or a drill or anything like that. And, uh, and the church knows that. So the work that's being done on the building is not courtesy of PJ. Uh, so, so, but I am praying. <laughs> I'm praying. Um, but as we were planting yesterday, what happened was this, is that we took these little plants that my son had put in these pots and they were outgrowing the pots. But they started from a little seed. And I don't know about you, but that to me is a great mystery. How you can take a look at a little seed, and there's information in that seed, which if placed in the right environment, it can sprout up and grow to 15 feet, 20 feet, 25 feet into a tree. That's crazy. And yet, the way that God created things is that everything is made to replicate, yes? He created everything to replicate, and for you sitting here, the way that you were formed, 23 chromosomes from your father, met 23 chromosomes from your mother, and boom, you're, th there you are. That's a mystery. But the greatest mystery, again, is the spiritual growth of a human being from being self-centered, from living in this crazy world. I heard a preacher the other day said that the world that we're living in is the equivalent to an insane asylum sometimes. And you turn on the news and you wouldn't doubt that. But how the mystery of godliness unfolds, what we're going to see today as we study this passage is we're going to see that what you believe is shown to the world by your actions. 
So it's important to know why you believe what you believe. And as that manifests itself in your heart, and as that grows, as you say you study God's word and you're learning about God's truth, what happens is, is that something is happening and your life is being transformed. So as we look at the verses today, in a, mes- in a message that we've called the mystery of godliness, Paul says this, he says, These things I write to you, verse 14, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I wrote so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Stop there. All right, Paul is writing Timothy. Now, he hopes to come to him shortly, but in case I don't get there, because Paul doesn't know for sure that his will, that God's will is going to be to get him to Timothy, but he can do something, right? So what does he do? He picks up a pen, and he writes this letter. Now, in writing this letter, let me ask you, do you think that Paul understands when he's writing this letter, when somebody knocks on his door, he says, okay, uh, stop, guys, I'll be out in a little while. I'm writing the New Testament. No, he's writing a letter to this young man, Timothy. And because he's writing and he's stepping out in obedience, he's doing something. If I don't get there, If by chance I don't get there, if I'm delayed, I want you to have this piece of information because everybody in this church today know this, is that you can do something and you can be obedient where you're at. No matter how powerless you feel in your circumstances or your challenges, no matter where you're at, you can do something. Maybe it's send somebody an encouraging text. Maybe it's write somebody a letter by snail mail. Maybe it's pick up the phone and call someone. But a lot of the time, gang, it's this. A lot of the time, we can get down on our knees and pray and lift the need up to God because who can better do something about anyone's problems in here than the living God? You can always do that, no matter where you're at. had a friend I was talking to yesterday, and the child was sick. Don't feel like you can do anything where you're at. They're in a different state. You can pray to the all-known, all-powerful King of Heaven, the great physician. We can always do something. And Paul's bent right here is to say, listen, I'm going to write to you. And because he steps out in obedience, what do you have? You have this letter that he wrote to this young pastor included in this book, a letter of encouragement, a letter of edumacation, a letter of instruction right here. Because he stepped out in obedience. If you're just obedient where you're at, you don't know, you don't know what that's going to result in. So the encouragement that we first have from this letter today, as we're going to get into this whole mystery of godliness, the first thing I want to show you is that be obedient where you're at. Wherever you are, you can do something. The fact that you're in here today and you have the word of God in front of you, you have a choice today. You can sit here and you can say, well, you know what, I'm just, I've got to be here today. I don't necessarily feel like being here, and I'll just kind of sit through it. Or you can say, listen, if there's a God, and I'm struggling with the idea, I want to hear from you. And if you say that, and if you seek him with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, guess who's going to meet with you today? This God. That's his promise. That's his promise. So Paul says, listen, in case I don't get there, I'm going to write to you. He says, and the reason that I'm writing for you is that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. You are in the house of God. No, you're not. You're in a cafeteria. Let me tell you, if you were in in a shopping center, if you were in a building with a steeple on it, if you were under a pavilion at the beach where two or more are gathered in his name, 
There too, you are in the house of God. You get it? You're in the house of God. And in God's house, just like in my father's house, there was a code of conduct. Was there a code of conduct in your house growing up? Oh, yeah. In my house, my father, we had rules in my home. All right? In my home, we had rules. And anybody that's met my father knows that my father is a rule enforcer. In our home, we had rules regarding the phone. If dad needed the phone, I was to get off the phone as a teenager. But as I got a touch rebellious in my teenage years, well, I started not obeying the code of conduct and feeling the consequences because of it. In one instance, I was talking to my girlfriend on the phone, and we were mid-breakup. And I was kind of emotional, and I was kind of really upset about the whole thing. And I'm on the phone with her, and we'd been on the phone for like two hours. Dad finally gets on the phone. He gets on the other line. you got to get off the phone. I said, I'll be off the phone in a minute. Five minutes later, okay, it's time to get off the phone. Now, my dad's like a little Robert De Niro. Uh, so it's like, you got to get off the phone now. And I'm like, I'll get off the phone when I'm ready. No. He gives me about another two minutes. He says, John, get off the phone now. I scream at him, Dad, I'm on the phone. Get off the phone. Well, there were 24 stairs in this house. And Dad made it up 24 stairs in three steps. I didn't know the man could fly. In that moment, he and I had a come-to-Jesus meeting. All right? And the rules and the conduct that we were to exercise in the use of the phone in the house somehow became very clear in that moment. And I don't know about your households, but the, the code of conduct we have under my father's house, it's the same here in the house of God. What's his instructions? Jesus says, listen, the behavior in the house of God is clear. What I expect from your characters is clear. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they shall be filled. God has a standard. It's in his word. But the thing is this, is that if I come up here as a pastor and I say, well, you have to do this, you have to act like this, and you have to do that, well, then what happens is it becomes a ritual and a bunch of religious rules, whereas if you understand what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that he came to fulfill all the law, and then he died on a cross because he loved us, now what happens is I understand his love, now I want to act like he wants me to act, I want to be who he wants me to be, I want to do what he tells me to do, I want to say what he wants me to say. Why? Because I'm getting to know him, and every time I open up his book, wow, wow. You have a code of conduct, God, and and if I'm doing your will, I'm going to feel your power more? Yes, yes. If I'm doing his will, if I'm obedient, Because the evidence of faith is obedience, is it not? That's the evidence of faith. And so when we're here, listen, gang, you're in God's house. He's the architect. He is the builder. He is the contractor. He is the designer. He is the engineer. He is the foreman. He's all these things, and it's his house. But it's his house because the people of God are here. And the people of God... Boy, does he have something in store for us. It's to unveil and unleash the great mystery of godliness. That's a great mystery. And here's how it works. If you have ever... If you've ever been outside and you've looked up at the sky and you've seen some stars out, you know, in Florida there's a lot of light pollution. 
So you see some stars out there at night, and it's kind of cool, depending on where you're at. But if you've ever been up to the mountains, and if you've been to the mountains, and if you've looked up at the sky, it kind of expands your idea of how big everything is and the majesty of God's creation. And all of a sudden what's happened is this, is that as I'm looking at his creation, my idea of God has gone from this to, bam, wow, it explodes in my head. It absolutely explodes my idea of God. And the same happens when we go to his word and we see the truths like we're going to see today as we look at his word. As we look at these truths today, what happens is, is that Paul, in order to communicate to Timothy, he writes him a little, what they would call a hymn back in the day, a little hymn. And it goes like this, God was manifested in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed in the world, received up in glory. And here's the thing, just like so many songs that we sing in church, we could take a look at that, gloss over the words and not think about what they mean. Whereas if you sat down and if you actually thought about what these words mean, it would absolutely blow your mind. Expand your idea about God. And as we're expanding our idea about God and we are putting him in perspective, every challenge that you're going through, gang, will also be put in perspective. And you'll see your challenges differently. You'll see them more through the eyes of a shepherd ready to fight a giant rather than a soldier quaking in their boots because they've lost sight of their God. Which are you today? And so as we take a look at these six truths here really quickly, the first thing that we're going to see is that as we take a look, this is what, what you have here. This is Greek poetry, first of all. It's Greek poetry the way that it's written. And because of that, Greek poetry isn't like rhyming. It isn't like roses are red, violets are blue, da-da-da-da-da. It isn't that. All right, when you take a look at Greek poetry... The whole idea of the poetry is in contrasting ideas. So check this out real quick. We're going to read through it. God was manifested in the flesh. And what's the opposite of the flesh? The spirit. It says in the next line, justified in the spirit. So God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. It also says that he was seen by angels, heavenly beings, but he was preached among the Gentiles, the lowest of the human beings. It says that he was believed on in the world, but he was received up in glory to heaven. And so what you have are these contrasting ideas of the flesh and the spirit and the angels and the humans and the world and heaven where he's exalted. Now we're going to take a look really quick as we say God was manifested in the flesh. What if you sat down and you really considered these ideas? The, let's say, say the song that we just sang, Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds your hands have made. Have you ever sat down and just been like, wow. Wow, wow, wow. God, you are so massive and you are so amazing and you're so big. Well, the first truth we take a look at here is it says that God was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. And that He was manifested in the flesh, well, what that's telling us is that Jesus Christ came as a man. Because if you think about it, when you go outside, you can see evidence of creation, yes? I mean, you'd have to be in complete, utter denial to go out there and say that this is all an accident. And I'll tell you why, because if I put an eight-piece Lego set in front of you and I said, okay, let's wait till it assembles itself, grab your Snickers bar, because you're not going to be going anywhere for a while. It's not going to assemble itself, okay? You've got so many parts, lots of moving parts, right? Lots of moving parts for them to come together and form this world and then to form human beings who have this longing in their heart for eternity, 
That's an amazing thing, and that's evidence of the living God. But the greatest evidence of the living God, when we study the life of Jesus Christ, it says here that He was manifested in the flesh. And when we study the life of Jesus Christ, what we see is God. Because you would have a hard time understanding, let's be very honest about this, you would have a hard time understanding the character of God without studying the person of Jesus. And that's why we have these words here. So if you ever get to a point in your life where you're saying, listen, I'm just struggling I'm struggling to understand who God is, what he's doing. Open up to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Start studying the life of Jesus Christ. If you're feeling far from God, start, start communing with Jesus in the word by the power of his spirit, in the words that are right in front of you. You come in here saying, listen, I just, I'm struggling with the whole faith idea, Pastor. I'm struggling with it. Open up the word. Open up the word. That's where faith comes from. That's not your pastor's counsel. That's the word of God's counsel. God was manifested in the flesh. See, when you really think about what this means to your own life, it will blow you away because what you'll realize is this, is that the God of heaven became a man so that he could be a sympathetic high priest to us. And let me explain to you when this doesn't happen, what it looks like. As many of you see in the the first row is my daughter, and that's Hannah. And... Hannah has a hard time communicating. And this week, it was absolutely devastating, and I don't mind telling you this, because we were sitting down the other night, and Hannah just starts crying. She just starts crying, and you can tell that she's in pain. And as I'm watching my daughter go through this pain, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what's bothering her. And as a father... That's devastating. I'm like, baby, what's wrong? Use your words. Tell me what's wrong. What's wrong? And I'm thinking in that moment, if I could only, if I could be her for one second, just for one second so I could understand what she was going through. Oh, Lord. The God of heaven became a man. He knows what you're going through. Every bit of it. My pain and my struggle in that moment, he understands. He gets it. As a dad, there's nothing I wouldn't do. Your heavenly father's the same. There's nothing he wouldn't do to get to you. He made his son. Jesus came as a man so that he could understand, be tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Long ago there ruled in Persia a wise and good king, and he loved his people. He wanted to know how they lived. He wanted to know about their hardships. Often he dressed in the clothes of a working man or a beggar and went to the homes of the poor. And no one whom he visited thought that he was their ruler. One time he visited a poor man who lived in a cellar. He ate the coarse food the poor man ate. He spoke cheerful, kind words to him, then he left. Later he visited the poor man again and disclosed his identity by saying, I am your king. The king thought the man would surely ask for some gift or favor, but he didn't. Instead, he said, you left your palace, listen, you left your palace in your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others, you have given your rich gifts. To me, you've given yourself. That's what that means. If you were to sit down and meditate on that for even five minutes in the morning, that God came as a man. He came as a man because he loves you. That's your God. So God was manifested in the flesh. And so we'll say here he engaged in the flesh. But not only did he engage in the flesh, well, the very next stanza said he was justified in the spirit. Justified in the spirit meant this. Listen, Jesus, nobody that 
confesses the Christian faith would doubt that Jesus led a perfect life. But for the first 30 years of that life, it doesn't say he was tempted by Satan. He overcame the world and he overcame flesh, but there are no records of his encounters with Satan. So he overcame the world and he overcame the flesh because the Holy Spirit was inside him. And when he was ready for ministry and he took the step of obedience, the Holy Spirit fell down upon him. And when the Holy Spirit fell down upon him, he was able to overcome temptation and do things that have absolutely astounded and stunned the world since then. What does that mean to us? Simple. Listen. We learn from Jesus that we can have a life empowered. This is the mystery of godliness. He engaged in the flesh, but he also empowered the Spirit. All right, he was empowered by the Spirit of God. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that raised Lazarus from the dead, the same power that fed the multitudes, the same power that walked on water, that Holy Spirit is present inside of you in a very real and powerful way, and you do not go to heaven unless you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead, and his Holy Spirit comes in you and saves you. But not only does he save you, what happens next is amazing because now he puts his word in front of you he puts these words of life in front of you and for anybody that opens it up the holy spirit also explains god's word to you so he comes alongside you and says here let me show you something he explains god's word to you and then when he explains it most of us are baffled like i am whenever we read it and you say you're calling me to this life and this life is impossible and god says i know that too so not only did i give you my holy spirit to instruct you and educate you, but I also give you my Holy Spirit to empower you for the life that I've called you to live. What is it like to try to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit? Let me explain it like this. Many of you got to church this morning by vehicles, by cars. Okay, I live out in Lake Worth. All right. In my driveway, I have a car that can take me to church. Now, if I want to go to church, but I stay in the house and I don't get in the car, I'm never going to get to the church. I've got the vehicle right there to get me to the church, but if I don't have the right relationship with the vehicle, if I don't get in, if I don't start it, and if I don't go, then I'm not going to have that power to get to the church. So too, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. Is anybody in here having trouble loving someone today? Anybody? Because if you're having trouble loving someone, the Holy Spirit is here. Does anybody in this room need wisdom today? If you need wisdom, the Holy Spirit is here. If you need comfort, the Holy Spirit is here. Whatever your needs are. That's why when Jesus, when they, when, when they, they kept asking him, he said, I am. Why? Because he is. He is. He is. And his Holy Spirit will show you exactly who he is if you go looking for him. So that's what we see in the first stanzas. God was manifested in the flesh. He was justified in the Spirit. So he engaged in the flesh. He was empowered by the Spirit. But this will blow your mind if you think about this. He was seen by angels. Jesus, from his birth to his resurrection, the angels were familiar with the Godhead. They were familiar with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But they'd never seen this. The angels had never seen this. God had become a man. 
Because when the angels fell, there was no help of the angels getting saved. And yet the angels could look at the fallen mess that this world is, and when they saw that, wow, God became a man. Lower than the angels. He became lower than the angels. He was seen by the angels, so he was eyewitnessed by the angels. So he was engaged in the flesh. He was empowered by the Spirit, and he was eyewitnessed by the angels. Great angelic beings saw Christ bring himself down like this. Listen, when there's somebody that you respect, a boss at work, and they come and they roll up their sleeves and they come alongside you and they say, hey, let me, let, let me help you get this done. Don't you grow in respect for that person? Don't you grow in respect for them? Jesus thought it nothing to be made lower than the angels so that the angels could look at Him. And they eyewitnessed something marvelous. They saw the baby born in a manger and that He came into a world that made no room for Him. They saw Him tempted in every way. Reject the enemy and they ministered to His needs. Can you imagine that? Have you ever stopped to think about that for a second? What's it like? He had the angels. The angels needed to minister to the needs of Jesus Christ. And then after He arose from the grave... There they were sitting on, the, sitting on the stone saying, He's not there. He is risen. He had been eyewitnessed by the angels. Can you just imagine that the angels are sitting there saying, Look what God did. Look at this amazing thing that He did. And do we lose, if the angels were marveling at something like that, then when did we stop marveling over it? When did we stop marveling over the great thing that Jesus Christ did on our behalf in becoming a man? He was on display for the entire world to see, but also for all of heaven to see. And the Bible tells us that the heavens declare the the power of the living God. So it says here that he was seen by the angels, but also he was preached among the Gentiles. So not only was he eyewitnessed by the angels, but what you see here is that he was evangelized to man. Man was told the good truth about God. They were told the truth about the living God. All right, because this is the truth that could save a soul. Have you heard it? Have you yourself received it? If you've received it and He saved your soul, what have you done about it? What have you done about it? There are statistics. Reliable statistics that tell us that people that have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior that know that they're going to heaven have never told another living soul about their faith. If you understand that when you were drowning, He threw you the life raft and you were put on the boat with so many life rafts and you had the ability to cast it out, it would be the equivalent of a fireman not running into a fire or a policeman not doing their job. That would be the equivalent. When they have the ability to do something and help someone, you have the ability to tell someone about the love of Jesus Christ. So he was preached among the Gentiles. We see an instance of this. I want you to leave your place in Timothy just for a moment. Go over to the book of Acts. It's chapter 8. 
And it's verse 26. And it reads like this. Acts 8, verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Stop right there. Here's what you have. You have this man, Philip. He's told by the Lord, listen, there's a guy. He's a man of color. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. He went to the temple to worship. And what happened to him was something that should never happen in the church. He went and he was turned away and he was given a scripture that he didn't understand. He was giving a word. It would be like somebody walking into this church, me giving them a Bible and just saying, okay, be, be merry and be well and be fed. Good luck with that. 1,700 page book that, you, that, you, that you've never opened up, uh, read in the, in the King James Version. Forget it. If they come into the church... It's the church's responsibility to make disciples. This man had come and he was rejected from coming into the temple because of his skin color, because he was a eunuch, because of all of these different things that excluded him from going into the religious establishment. They shut him out. He went there seeking and he left wondering. He went in there seeking and he left wondering and now he's going home. Like some people I fear that have come into a church sometimes and feel like, hey, I didn't experience the love of God there. I didn't hear the word of God there. I didn't, I didn't have that encounter that I was hoping for. And he leaves. And how sad is that? But he's one person. And now here's this one person. And he's going back home. And it says as he was on the road, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? Philip's really asking him, Do you know know the good news? Do you understand this? Do you understand the implications of what's in this book? And the eunuch says this, and how sad is this? He walked away from church and he didn't know the gospel. It says here, How can I unless somebody guides me? And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch went seeking God. He went to the temple. He, had a, he went for a religious experience, and he walked away empty, barren. And what happened instead was this. It says, the eunuch answered Philip and he said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Do you see what's happened here, folks? is that what you have is a man that came seeking God and because a man of God was sent to him. Here you have, you have the opportunity to learn about the living God in this place today. And some of you come in here and you're taking it so incredibly seriously and you're saying, God, speak to me. Like this eunuch, he came hungry 
and he was told the good news. For anybody that desires to hear the good news, it's right here in this book and available for all mankind. And the angels don't have it, but you do. So the way, the way into someone's heart is by preaching the gospel. What they call evangelism. Preaching the word of God. Something that Billy Graham was known for doing oh so very effectively. Let's go back to the book of Timothy. So God was manifested in the flesh. So He engaged in the flesh. He was justified in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, seen by the angels, eyewitnessed by the angels, preached among the Gentiles, evangelized to mankind. He, believed on, he was believed on in the world. Listen, for all intents and purposes, the church should not be here today. Okay? The church of Jesus Christ should not be in this world today with all the opposition that it has ever faced. But he was believed in the world. He was believed by these disciples. They saw him after he had risen from the dead. And because of that, they were willing to sacrifice their lives. And you don't sacrifice your life for something that's a hoax. You don't sacrifice your life for something that's not true. You don't sacrifice your life for something that's phony just for the sake of doing it so that you can say, look at how I got one over on everyone. Look at what I did. That would be silliness, wouldn't it? It says he was believed on in the world. And to those that called upon the name of Jesus Christ, he gave the power to become sons of God because he was believed in the world. History tells us of a a man named Voltaire. And Voltaire was a French philosopher. And he promised that a hundred years after his death that the Bible wouldn't be in existence. Well, 50 years after Voltaire died in 1728, his home was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society and they printed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Bibles. Craziness. Let me ask you. If we say here, he was believed on in the world, he was embraced in the world, he was embraced in the world. If he was believed on in the world, then let me ask you, is this what you believe? Is it this God that you believe? And if not... How has what you believed in bettered your life? How has what you've put your investment and your heart in, has that bettered your life? If not, the Bible tells us of a God that loves you. It's not some random, obscure idea of a God, but the God of heaven who knows you by name. Lastly, it says he was received up in glory. So not only was he embraced, but then he was received up in glory, which simply means he was exalted in heaven. He would made himself low, lower than any man. He made himself a bondservant, came in the likeness of God, and came in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearance of a man, humbled himself in obedience, even to the point of death on a cross. The Bible says, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so if you've been brought low in your life, the one that has been lifted up and high, This God, this is the one that we come today to worship and to celebrate. And as we look at Scripture, if we were to think of any of these truths just for a moment, that He is exalted right now, and this one that is exalted, that's your God. That's your God. 